This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you've joined us again today. Well, today I'm speaking to you from Legal Talk Network studio just outside of Boston, and we're going to have a very interesting show. We're going to talk about 468B Settlement Trust, and it's been a while since we had a a show on 468B, but it's time to revisit it, especially uh, in light of the thoughts of our special guest. And my co-host today is Carmela Limangeli from our Ringler Associates New York City office. Carmela has over 20 years' experience in the structured settlement business and has handled all kinds of complex cases along the way. Well, Mela, welcome to Ringler Radio. Hi, Larry. How are you? It's great. I'm uh, awfully glad you joined us, and uh, I understand you just came back from a trip overseas. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I hope you're back nice, safe, and sound. Our special guest today is Rick Willems. Rick is the Chief Claim Officer at Chartist U.S., overseeing all claim operations in the U.S. and Canada for the Chartist organization. Uh, Before that, he held major claim positions at uh, Chartist and its predecessor entities. And even before that, he started his claim career at the Travelers. It's quite an impressive uh, career, Rick, and uh, I guess that Travelers experience is quite a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, Larry, it's been since what, 97, I think, is when wow. I first came over to uh, to AIG to, to start here um, as an excess casualty guy. So uh, it has been a while, but that is where I started in the business. So I have a, a fondness for that. I started as a, you know, plain old claim rep, working a regular liability desk out in Cleveland. So uh, that's, <laughs> that's where I first learned our business, and uh, that has stuck with me till till now. Well, that's terrific. Uh, it gives you great insight into what the, the field folks are doing every day. And uh let me just say formally, welcome to Ringler Radio, Rick, and we're glad to have you here today to talk about this very interesting and uh, important and sometimes even controversial subject called 468B. Well, for some of you listeners out there who may not be too familiar with 468B, uh, let me just give you a quick uh, definition. It comes from uh, Internal Revenue Service Code Section 468B. It was essentially created to allow defendants in mass tort cases to pay their settlement funds into a trust, receive a full and final release uh, before all the various plaintiffs in this mass tort scenario have sorted through their pro rata share of, of settlement funds. And uh, that was the initial scope of the, uh, of, the, of the code section. But as we've seen over the years, uh, some folks have tried to you know, refine that in, to some degree. And uh, I think, Mella, you're, uh, we're all familiar with that. Correct, Larry. Uh, it, it is a tax benefit for the defendant to pay into the trust. And, and it, you're correct, it is used when there are numerous plaintiffs or a class action suit. And it's a good way to assist in the administration of those funds when there are a number of plaintiffs uh, involved. However, there are a couple of basic requirements for the 468B trust. Mm-hmm. And these are just the basics. Uh, one is that it does have to be established pursuant to the order 
uh, of the court and supervision of the court. Uh, two, um, it is used to resolve or satisfy claims that come out of either one event or a series of events. The example in you know some of the uh, environmental cases, there were continuous amounts to fund the cleanup. And third, uh, it is required that the trust be applicable uh, under state law. So it does have to um, to be applicable under the state law, and its assets, otherwise, have to be segregated from the assets of the defendant. So, Rick, with that as background, uh, let's talk about 468B in in another setting, and that's where, and some people have advocated for this, and I know you have a, a strong position on it, but let's talk about when, instead of having multiple claimants, what about if we have a single claimant? Uh, are 468Bs trust appropriate for that setting? Uh, Larry, we think not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, at Chartist, we, we come to this question as a big institutional supporter of structured settlements. Yes. You know, we're the largest buyer of structured settlements in the world. Um, it's a big part of our institutional approach to managing uh, workers' comp and liability claims that we think the structured settlement device works really well for all the parties involved in the transaction. So it's not like we don't completely support the idea of structured settlements. It's not like we're a big institutional believer in them. We are. Mm-hmm. And and we spend a fair amount of time and energy you know, every day um, you know, continuing to push that among our claim staff. So, you know, I think we come to the topic with a fair amount of credibility that, that you know, that we like the tool in general. And 468B trusts for the multi-claimant, for the mass tort situation, we think is entirely appropriate, you know, good and useful. Um, where Where we draw the line is the single claimant situation, because there we think the tax law surrounding that transaction is not settled. We don't think Congress meant to make a single claim at 468B trust the right thing to do. We think there's still a constructive receipt problem with those trusts. And so we worry that when plaintiffs want to do that, and, and generally the plaintiff, him or herself, doesn't care. They don't know anything about this conversation. So this is generally entirely a creation of either the plaintiff lawyer or the plaintiff structured settlement broker or, or the two of them in combination that they're they're creating a potential for a future tax problem that when it manifests itself, when the service decides to get around to dealing with this, which could be five or 10 or 15 years from now, Mm -hmm. that they're going to look around and, and hit those plaintiffs who took that money with a, with a pass due bill for taxes because they hadn't been paying taxes on the interest accrued on these annuities over time. They've been assuming they got the same kind of tax advantage that a regular structured settlement does. And when they hit them with that bill, those people are going to look around for somebody to sue. (laughs) So, you know, the first people they'll look at are the people they're in privity with, which was their lawyer or their lawyer's broker. But the problem there is that both of those entities are historically ephemeral in nature, right? Plaintiff lawyers as institutions don't have long institutional longevity. They come and they go. And the same with with plaintiff structured settlement brokers. There's no example of one that's been around for 30 years. There's no example for one that has a great institutional foundation. There are a series of one-offs that come and go. Mm -hmm. So the people who will be left to sue 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now will be the, the original defendant 
who's our policyholder, or us. And we don't have any appetite for collecting that kind of contingent liability over time. Right? The, with every day that goes on, without the service bringing complete clarity to this situation, the overhang of transactions like that that have happened and that create that contingent liability grows. And, and it's, we as an institution do not want to have to roll the dice that 20 years from now the service is finally going to get desperate enough for revenue that they decide to look hard at this situation and decide to rule in favor of the fact that actually a single claimant trust isn't eligible under 468B is a constructive receipt problem and that those people have not been getting tax-free benefits all along. Well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it, it is amazing, you, you said it well, that a, a lot of this is caused by a plaintiff attorney or a broker uh, just trying to get control of, of the situation and trying to set up a situation that potentially uh, causes a lot of problems in, in return for what they consider to be uh, short-term gains. So uh, you're right about that. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, it's not like it's not like we in Chartist don't like structured settlements. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, we do. We demonstrate that every single day. You know, we, we didn't quite make it to $750 million in premium last year out of our claim operations here in the U.S., but we got pretty close. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I don't know where number two is, but I know number two is a long way behind us. So you, you, you can't say that we don't like the tool. We love the tool, but we do insist that it be done right. And, and to us, the transaction being done right means it's done through a broker that we have some faith and confidence in to know that they're going to execute the transaction well, so we require it be done by someone off our panel. And then we require that the annuity be placed with somebody who we think is appropriately reliable likewise. And we have a choice, I think, of five life markets right now mm-hmm. out of the universe of nine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like doing business with us is that hard. I don't think it is. And, and, and you know we try to make it painless, as painless as it can be under the circumstances. So, you know, why it's worth it for a plaintiff to pick a fight on a single claimant 468B trust is is frankly a mystery to me. I don't know why they think it's worth the time and trouble because they got to know we're going to fight it. We're not going to accept that contingent liability, um, you know, sitting down. It's going to be a problem. And, and, you know, we will never, ever voluntarily accede to a single claimant for 68B trust. We won't do it. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later in this uh, broadcast about uh, what some of the reasons may be for why they're pursuing it and, and get to the bottom of that. But Mello, why don't you uh, jump in here? Well, first of all, Rick, I, I must say, uh, Chartist does have an excellent program and your claims people are very well trained and the continuing education uh, of the claims people definitely helps the structured settlement broker because it's a, um, a very good match uh, as part of the defense team. Um, you know, the idea of 468B trust, you know, usually comes into the picture as the case is settling and the resolution is, is at hand. And uh, the courts do get involved in, in it and perhaps also in the administration uh, of the trust when we have it. Um, and they do. It, it does really make sense because the payouts can be, you know, tremendous with a with a with a number of groups. And in the beginning, it was not really set up to help the plaintiffs. It was something, at least in its infancy, back in the day, it was designed to help the defendants who were plagued with large, typical class action lawsuits, who needed a way to bring some closure to these cases. Usually, there were multiple 
defendants in the case, and the each individual defendant would have liked to have closed their file. So I think it started off in one direction, and then, as Rick says, it's taken a totally new direction. No, no question about it. And you know, the defendant does in these four sixty eight Bs get a full release when they pay their money into that uh, into that entity, which is you know obviously a good thing, but. Uh, we're talking about multiple claimant 468Bs where this makes sense. And again, we'll come back a little later to, to some of the, the abuses in that process. But the bottom line is we've got a, a vehicle here that can be beneficial, but like many things in life, uh, it's getting a little bit uh, distorted. So Rick, you have a strong opinion about these trusts. You've already uh, demonstrated it here, the, here this morning. You think those that espouse 468B are wrong on the law and and explain what you mean by wrong on the law in terms of single claimant. I, I know you talked about the the potential for constructive receipt, but it's just plain wrong to 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 talk about a a single claimant potentially with a spouse that they try to uh, now convert to a multi claimant, or someone with a lien who they now want to say that's a multiple claimant case. Uh, there's a lot of distortion, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, those who for whatever reason have decided that they have an institutional interest in trying to push that tool have, have tried to find a couple different ways to bootstrap single claimant cases into something that they can call a multi-claimant case. And usually that involves dredging up derivative claims and, and saying that somehow those things are you know separate and independent claims and therefore get them across the multiple claimant hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've, you've put your finger on the two biggest attempts to do that the, the the you know the consortium claim mm-hmm. that's the classic derivative claim um and and the lien claim which is likewise a derivative claim so you know we look at both those and say nice try um but it's still really a one claimant case everything else stems from the rights of the one claimant uh we all know what a multi claimant case really looks like um and you know attempting to kind of weasel into multiple claimant territory by using derivative claims just doesn't work you know, one other thing before uh, we get too far along on this. What about the, the the family, the single small family where there's dad and mom and a couple of kids uh, so that the consortium goes beyond just the spouse? And I've heard this as, you know, no pun intended, I've heard this espoused by by some plaintiff attorneys that, you know, family a family can constitute these multiple claims. There's this, there's this uh, insistence that they're in the right. How do you feel about something like that? It, uh, the, the test I would offer up is if, if in that situation, if they truly have independent claims. So if you've got you know five people who are all hurt and all have a truly independent claim, they might have the same liability basis, but they have their own independent damages analysis that goes on. Mm-hmm. And if they can demonstrate that there's any level of potential adversity among them, which sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't, that, you know, then we're open to that. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not doctrinaire about this. We don't, we don't say no just to say no because it's fun. Mm-hmm. So if, if they can actually show us that it's a true multi-claimant situation, you know, then okay. I mean, that's not normally the case. Normally they all have one lawyer, um, and they are, in fact, acting in a coordinated way, and there is, in fact, nothing adverse among them. Exactly. But but it doesn't have to be that way. And so you know that is potentially a multi claimant case. You just have to look at the, at the at the particulars. I agree with you there. there I've been in, involved in situations where they have had 
different attorneys, and there really has been a battle between what family member was going to get what percentage, and there were guardian items involved. And there, I can see what you're saying. It does create a scenario where it could potentially um, a 468B trust can be done. But when they're trying to use the facade that there is discord and they all have the same attorney, you really have to scratch your head and yeah, say, exactly. if there was discord, why aren't you all individually represented? I think that's the the test when I'm sitting at a mediation and they're saying there's discord and there's one uh, one attorney handling it. Yep. Yeah, Great. No question. Ray, can you give us an example of a situation in which a 468B trust wasn't really needed in a single claimant case? Well, I, I, we've had several over the last few years in which they're classic single claimant situations. Um, uh, you know, there's nothing mass toward about them. It's a pure A versus B kind of case. And yet plaintiffs have either in advance tried to set up a 468B trust before we were really around and then tried to back us into that as the vehicle for settling the case or or tried to bring it up after we had a tentative settlement um, and said, no, just, just make the check out to the XYZ settlement trust and, you know, tried to create this new intermediate layer um, in the, into the settlement process. Um, you know, I, I can think of maybe a half a dozen of these that have happened over the last, you know, three years in which the, the fact pattern of the case was a purely vanilla single claimant tort case. Um, and, and those are the ones on which, you know, we are going to strenuously resist. You know, you know, Rick, it's interesting. I had a situation in Texas where the, the assertion was to do a 468B on a single claimant case. And I will say that you folks, you know, agreed to fight that in, in the court. And, uh, you know, to the surprise of the plaintiff attorney, you, you actually, you know, fought that motion that was, uh, that was heard, uh, causing tremendous potential delay for this claimant who's sitting there from getting funds because it was going to be a long drawn out uh, effort. And that was the first that claimant ever, ever realized that there was this issue going on. The minute he found out that, that these funds are going to be delayed because of a plaintiff attorney and a plaintiff broker trying to uh, pursue this avenue, he put a stop to it right away and said, that's crazy. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it the structured settlement way that was originally proposed. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think you mentioned it earlier. A lot of these claimants are in the dark about this process as it's, as it's being uh, fomented in the background. Well, and that's one of the things that, that, from our perspective, is kind of frustrating, is that it's our perception that this isn't being done to generate any particular advantage for the claimant. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's all about the other players in the transaction, and that, you know, sometimes they seem perfectly willing to make the transaction harder and slower and more difficult for the claimant just to satisfy whatever their little institutional agenda is. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, we, we, we look at that, you know, from the other side of the hill and say it doesn't sound to us like these people are really being very good advocates for their client if they're willing to create so much additional problem for them in, in a way that doesn't generate any benefit to their client. Absolutely. You, you know, one other thing uh, I think we need to talk about is this whole issue of what what is the original intent of of the Treasury Department and the IRS and and Congress? What is the what was their intent when they created this 468B? And I know 
with all of the discussion back and forth over the years, there's been some talk of uh, the Treasury, you know, maybe dealing with this and trying to clarify this issue at some point. I know that's a, often a dangerous uh, thing to, to have happen, but what's your view on the likelihood of of some further clarification coming from uh, from the Treasury on this? Uh, you know, Larry, they've they've had this issue on the calendar and then off the calendar at Treasury. Geez, it seems like for the last five years. Yes, and. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of clarity. I like I like knowing what the rules of the road are, and and we're big, very big on following whatever those rules are. But I, I'm just kind of given up on prognosticating what Treasury is going to do. You know, that involves a level of clairvoyance and political <laughs> insight that we don't have. So we're going to work with the law as it exists until such time as it changes. Um, but we, we yeah we would dearly love to have clarity. I would say for the structured settlement industry that I think getting clarity from Treasury in favor of single claimant 468B would be a bad thing Mm -hmm. in that I I think the people on both sides of the transaction who are annuity-based people need to understand that the competition they're opening themselves up to once that money has been deposited in that trust um, there's nothing that's going to say it's going to end up being invested in the form of an annuity. They will open themselves up to competition for that business by a whole bunch of commission-fed investment advisors who are probably better equipped on an economic basis to compete for that business, even though I don't think necessarily they'll have a product that's superior to a structured settlement annuity. I'm pretty sure they won't. Instead, they'll be selling riskier products, but those will be riskier products with a richer commission stream that those providers can leverage into a better relationship with the plaintiff bar. And, you know, I I really think if the people who want 468P single claimant trust to be approved by Treasury get that, they're going to wake up about five years later and find out that their business is gone. From a commercial standpoint, I don't don't understand why they're pushing this because I think it's commercial suicide for them. One of the other items I think that's a test is that there are very few life companies that will write and sell an annuity for a single for a single plaintiff for 68B trust. Mm-hmm. So in the plaintiff broker's market and plaintiff attorneys to try and do a single uh, a, a single person for 68B trust, they're really limiting the available markets and they're not taking advantage of best rates, the best rated companies by d- doing a, a single plaintiff for 68B trust. So I don't, in, in my world, I don't know how a plaintiff broker sells that to the plaintiff uh, or if they're even aware of it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. They, they, they take, if, if, it's an, if it's a transaction with us, they will have taken their universe of life markets from five down to either two or one. One, exactly. Um, and the- which cannot be an improvement. And supposedly the plaintiff broker's role uh, is to make sure and to double check on the defense broker to make sure that we're giving the best rates and that they have a, a selection. So uh, that that one really boggles my mind as to how they explain that one uh, as to the limitation of the marketplace. And as far as the life companies are concerned, even when they have a, a parent and a child or a husband and a wife, they say no. That to them is a single 
person uh, uh, 468B trust. Yeah, well, yeah, they don't want the contingent liability any more than we do. No, absolutely and, and, and for the most part, they see it the same way we do, which is that there's no sure answer. And if there isn't one, then why institutionally would you want to take the risk that at some point Treasury is going to clarify against that being a legit transaction and start to issue bills? No question about it. I think I think we find that the parties that are pushing the legislative clarity are are usually the ones coming from the plaintiff uh, brokerage community, rather than even the National Structured Settlement Trade Association isn't pushing for that at this point. So I think your points are well taken, and uh, you stated them very well, Rick. I, I think the other issue is a lot of these life companies. I mean, there there are potential tax implications if if some of these things get unraveled uh, through uh, through an audit or a treasury. Uh, uh, scrutiny of the of these single claimant cases, and uh, the last thing they want to do is be embroiled in any back tax kind of an issue uh, with either either for themselves or for any of the folks that they've sold any of these products for. So, no question about that. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back in a minute with more talk about 468B trusts with Rick Willems and Mella Limoncelli. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families at one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email. Or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and my co-host today is Mella Limongelli from our New York Ringler office. And, of course, our special guest, Rick Willems, Chief Claims Officer of the Chartist U.S. Operations. And we've been discussing 468B trusts uh, and the rather controversial area of their use in cases with a so-called single claimant uh, and Rick, if, if we have an orderly settlement process and both the lawyers and the clients and everyone wants to structure their settlement, uh, 
there's really no reason to even raise the 468B trust in these cases. Uh, we're all set to go without it. Uh, what What's your take on, on maybe why this issue even comes up when you have such uh, clarity about structured settlement or an annuity being the right way to go? Um, Larry, that's a little bit of a mystery to us in, in that, as you say, you know, we love structured settlements, so we're always going to be facilitative toward that and, and as helpful as we can be. We do occasionally find cases where you've got a broker on the plaintiff side who has some sort of agenda or grudge or vendetta. <laughs> yeah, or vendetta that that he or she wants to act out on over, you know, some transaction they had five or ten years ago. Um, obviously there's nothing we can do to fix that. So we're we're not even gonna try. We would say, you know, that we think we at Chartus run a very transparent and above board program, you know, that that wants to be as facilitative as it can towards structured settlement activity. So, you know, if they think we're behaving now in a way that isn't helpful, I want to hear about that. Mm-hmm. But but beyond that, we just don't get it. We, we we look on with some sense of puzzlement about why someone would want to make what ought to be a relative, relatively simple transaction harder. Well, the single claim in 468B uh, attempt can definitely add unnecessary tension, complexity, and, and a great deal of cost to the proceedings. But I think the most important part is that it limits the life market. So in an attempt to get the best, most competitive rates and um, combining different life companies to take advantage of their specific rate series, you're eliminating all of that. So I I guess I have the same puzzlement as to why the plaintiff, uh, attorney, and broker would want to do that to their client. Well, you know, Melly, you bring up an excellent point. I, I think when when brokers and those of you in the audience and, and the listening audience who are involved in this industry, when you're in those settings and it's it's being pushed to have the single claimant uh, approach, that's a great that's a great uh, counterpoint to talk about the limitation on life companies that are even going to be willing to write that business, taking away some of the flexibility and things like age rating to be able to really lower the cost overall and, you know, increase the benefit for the claimant. Well, you know, I bring up when they do start talking about a 468B trust, um, I do bring up the point of, so we're limiting it to one life company? Hmm. And I just kind of leave it at that. And then the plaintiff attorney, I, I think it's so plaintiff broker driven that the plaintiff brokers are feeding to the plaintiff attorneys exactly what they want them to hear. Oh, you need to take control. This is your right. money. It's blah, all about blah, blah. control. And I really think that's it. And then when I, I when I drop that little, hmm, so we're only going to live in this to one life company, the plaintiff bro- plaintiff attorney usually kind of looks over at his broker, and it's like a light, you know, yeah. lightning bolt. How is this better drop. for us? Right. Right. It's good without without even pushing hard just to start with that one phrase. And as I've often found, oftentimes the claimant themselves are not even aware of what's going on here behind the scenes. Uh, and really, when, when fully informed of that, sometimes step in and put a stop to that. And uh, and no question that there's added cost because having to fight this, and Rick, we are very, uh, very happy about the way that Chartist will fight these uh, these efforts. Uh, that costs money to, to pursue uh, in court proceedings to try to fight these off. So uh, nothing really comes good of these uh, ultimately except a lot of rancor and, and, uh, and, ups- and everyone being upset about the process. But 
we've just got to keep up the fight, though, because you, you, you can't let the bad guys win. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we're, you know, like I said earlier, we're never going to voluntarily take that contingent liability. So we're always going to fight. Um, and, and why a plaintiff, plaintiff lawyer or plaintiff broker would want to take on the additional time and transaction costs and aggravation that that fight involves is is beyond me. You know, I don't see any upside mm-hmm. for the plaintiff in doing that, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that this whole fight is so mystifying to me and frustrating. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's not like we wouldn't love to write a structure. Um, we do, we have, we will. Uh, all they got to do is say so. And, and, you know, as long as we can agree on the on the basic size of the deal and figure all that out, you know, we'll be very amenable and they'll have a good choice of life markets. And, you know, Amela, as, as you know, when we get to these mediations and it's about, we're about to wrap these up, it's very important. And I know, Rick, you, you've got a, a system where you want to have certain elements put into these mediation agreements that kind of take away the potential in the future for mischief. And uh, that, that language that goes in specifying what this case is going to be about in terms of both life company involvement and uh, the uh, really prohibition against these single claim and 468B uh, efforts, I think that ultimately will will help to slow down this this process. And uh, that's been a big help, I know, when we when we approach these mediations. I'm sure Mello agrees with that. Yes, we put that right in the mediation statement uh, at the time of settlement so that there is not a, uh, a question 24 or 48 hours later as to the approved life market, it, they, that charters will not pay into a single uh, plaintiff for 68B trust, and that, um, you know, need to follow those rules. It's an agreement that happened at the mediation. And, and I would add, too, that, you know, we, we know that you folks at Ringler probably have a pretty good idea who the bad actors are and who they are not. Mm-hmm. And if if you smell this kind of fact pattern shaping up, you know, we'd appreciate the heads up even even before we're talking about what goes in a settlement agreement. You know, letting the claim handler know, letting Izzy Acevedo know is a good thing. No no question about that. Well, you know, one of the, one of the most important things, of course, is that through this process, we're able to get a structured settlement for these claimants uh, to help them move their, you know, their future along in a safe and secure way. And in this economic environment, there are a lot of competing interests. You mentioned it before, uh, competing financial types who are going to be trying to get their ear. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate, and I say this on behalf of all of us in the structured settlement industry, we appreciate, Rick, Chartis's position, your position, uh, your, your position of support of structured settlements uh, to be that kind of creative tool to help the, the public out there. And we appreciate that very much. Well, Larry, we we appreciate that you like it, um, and it, you know we love you guys, but we don't do it for you. You know, we, we do it because we think it's the, the right <laughs> thing. For not, not, even, not even Mella. Not even Mella. Uh, you know, we do it because we think it's the right thing for our claim inventory. Um, you know, but it it still is the right thing, and I don't see that ever changing. So, uh, you know, you you can assume you're going to have a good partner in us for the foreseeable future. Well, that's great news. Well. Very good news. By the way, you know, Mello was right. I mean, we love the fact that you guys pursue this program and and push this 468B. It's it's uh, it's very helpful to have. Like I mentioned, the Texas case. I mean, there are not a lot of clients that would have fought that in court and paid the money for a defense. You know, someone to go in there and and fight that process. And uh, it takes it takes someone with backbone to do it. And I'm we're thrilled at Chartis and 
Lexington and folks like that have that. Well, we're hoping that at some point word will get around, yeah. right? And 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 the plaintiff bar and the plaintiff broker community will understand they're just making their job harder and more expensive and slower by wanting to dance on this, right. and and they'll and they'll wise up. You know, and a lot of this started, and let's be uh, honest about it too. A lot of this started because. Some brokers weren't willing to share with other brokers in these transactions of, of typical structured settlements. You know, when you have brokers trying to grab it all and not willing to share, other brokers decided, well, maybe they have to do something different to protect that process. So there's been a lot of that craziness going on through this industry for a while that's caused some of this to happen. And I think we all have to look uh, internally at ourselves, too, to make sure that we don't let that be a, be a, you know, be a cause of any of these issues. Yeah, you know, and I get that. To some extent, we're coming along now in the middle of a conversation that's been going on for a very long time. And as a result, we've got people in that conversation who are really angry over things that happened five or ten years ago. And that anger leads them to kind of act out in ways that aren't necessarily rational for the transaction at hand. And, and, you know, we can't do anything about that, right? I, I can't go back and rewrite history and create a universe in which everybody treated everybody else with respect throughout every transaction in the history of time. Right. Right. That we, we, you know, that's not a possible outcome. So all we can do is behave rationally and appropriately going forward. And we certainly have tried to make that a, a foundation of our program, that it's honest, it's above board, it's transparent. Um. And, you know, to the extent that there are people out there who don't think that about us, that's a conversation we're delighted to have. Um, you know, but, but the fact that we got some players in our industry who are just going to behave in what looked to me to be self-destructive ways, just because they're angry about having gotten screwed out of a commission 10 years ago, you know, there's just not much you can do with that. Yeah, no question. That's, and that, that's, a, that's a sad part of this whole process here. Well, Rick, if someone wanted to... Uh contact you, how would they do that? Uh, the first thing they could do is reach out to Izzy Acevedo, who runs our structured settlement program. He's at 212-458-5533. You know, if it's a more global uh, or less structured settlement-oriented issue and they want to talk to me, I can be reached here in New York, uh, either by email at rick, R-I-C-K dot Woolams, W-O-O-L-L-A-M-S at chartistinsurance.com, or by calling me up at 212-458-5766. Great. And Mella, how about yourself, if someone wanted to reach you? They can reach me via phone at 212-513-1440 or email me at, here it goes, C-L-I-M-O-N-G-E-L-L-I at ringlerassociates.com. Terrific. And they can also visit our website, which is... uh, has lots of good information. No question about it. I was going to say, if anyone wants to reach any of our Ringler Associates, ringlerassociates.com is the website, and we have uh, recently updated that website. It's We've really recreated it. It's terrific. I encourage anyone to go to the site. Uh, there's a lot of good information, and it changes all the time. Uh, I encourage you. And uh, if you want to hear this particular show, you can download it onto your iPod or listen to it on your computer. But if you download it on your iPod and you put those little earbuds in your ears, you can wander around the street and listen to Rick Willems and Mella and myself talk about 468B, and I think that would be a wonderful way to spend your walk. So, so with that, Rick, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. 
All right. My pleasure, Larry. Absolutely. And Mella, thank you for being our great co-host. You're welcome, Larry. And thank you, Rick, for being on our program. Terrific. Nice talking to you, Mella. Now, the rest of you out there, go have a great day. Take care. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio in its sixth year on Legal Talk Network with over a half a million listeners. Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.